Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 43, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And I can't believe that at the time of recording this, we've now just got eight weeks until Christmas. Oh God. Is there <laughs> anything that you've been thinking about that you want for Christmas, Dan? Well, you know what? A few of the things we're going to be talking about on this week's show, including was a pretty big announcement from Nintendo. Their new console got announced in the week. Oh, yeah. Might be on my pre-orders list. It's not until March, I don't think, but we'll talk more about that in a bit. And there may be a PlayStation 4 VR set. Oh, which has been a bit of controversy about this week. So we'll talk more about that in the next few minutes. So if you're making your Christmas list, because that clock's go back this weekend. Oh, God. Then we're definitely into that time of year, aren't we? Yeah. Well, <laughs> sure. an extra hour in bed. So. That's, that's all nice, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, we're going to talk more about this week's hot news stories in just a minute. And if you're new to the show, um, first of all, where have you been? 43 episodes in. We have a great back catalogue of guests. And this week on the Retro Hour, we're going to be catching up with Raphael Seco. Yeah, and he's he's been in kind of companies that we've never mentioned on this, uh, Microgen. Microgen, yeah, of course, back in the day. And he stuck with the Video Master Superscope. I've never even heard of that. <laughs> that was system. his first console, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then he, uh, you know, he worked with Hoosen. Yeah. We had Rob Hoosen on the other day. And Mev Dink as well from Vivid Image. So this is a great connecting guest here. Absolutely. And also, you know, Legendary Games has worked on Exelon, Cybernoid, Stormlord. He had a column in Crash Magazine, the biggest Sinclair Spectrum mag back in the day. We're having um, a bit of a Spectrum vibe at the moment, aren't we, Dan? <laughs> and also used to uh, used to sneak boobies into his video games. Oh, n- naughty, <laughs> naughty things in the games. Right? So we're going to catch up with Raphael Seco on the Retro Hour in the next half an hour. Now, every week on the show, we always give a massive big up to our various generous donators who've uh, contributed to the running costs of the Retro Hour. Yeah, they've just gone on the RetroHour.com and clicked donate. And this week, got to say a massive thank you to Stephen Marshall. Colin Reed. And Sarin Legard, who've all made very generous donations to the podcast. Thank you so much, guys. That's really, really appreciated. And of course, if you have one little tip, theretrohour.com. And thank you for your iTunes reviews as well. We've posted some really nice ones that we've had on Facebook. And, you know, this kind of stuff makes it worth it. Oh, yeah. You know, just doing this. And sometimes it's a stress getting guests and sometimes it's hard to get in. But you know what? It's all worth it when you post really amazing stuff like that. Thanks, guys. And Ravi gets in hot water off his girlfriend for, you know, leaving her to come in the studio. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's a welcome break, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could be out doing worse things, come yeah. on. <laughs> so let's get into this week's stories then. Now we did mention, of course, um, I know it's not technically retro, but they are the oldest video games company in the world, so everyone's And it is a direction into the retro compared to the other ones, I, I think, with the design of it. We are talking about the Nintendo Switch, Nintendo's newest console. What are your thoughts then? What do you think? I think that in a few years, CEX is going to be full of broken bits of Nintendo Switches, all the different elements. There's a lot of bits that can break on there, but um, hopefully their build quality will be high. I I think with the third-party support as well, that they've released a list of all the companies they've got on there. Mm -hmm. They haven't had this many third-party companies since the GameCube. You know, this is big. It is. I mean, the trailer came out 
earlier on this week, and apparently, is it Tegra Ford chipset I think it's based on? I think so. Yeah. Um, so I think, power, you know, in terms of raw power, they reckon it's not even going to be as powerful as an Xbox One or a PS4 currently. But again, you know, for Nintendo consoles, they don't really go for that kind of raw power kind of thing, do they? It's more the, the experience and their, I mean, you know, really, at the moment, you buy a Nintendo console for their first party releases, don't you? And looking at that trailer, I should tell you what I thought was really cool about it. I saw a little bit of a change in direction. Did you notice watching it that everyone in that was like in the 20s and 30s? Oh, yeah. Young and cool and hip. But it, no, usually there's like little toddlers in their adverts. Now no. they're going for people in like, you know, who've got jobs who are older, a more like mature audience. Well, if you think about it, the market that has took all of Nintendo's casual gamers has been the tablet or the mobile market. This looks like a tablet and it supports that stuff. So games like Fruit Ninja and all of this kind of stuff, I can imagine are going to come on this and all these big Android titles and that's just going to boost the Nintendo because before it was a choice like, oh, do I get a DS and stick in the Nintendo universe or do I get an Android phone and get all of them, you know? And so hopefully now you'll have all these casual games in one kind of nice device. I've heard that you probably can get that as well. I mean, you know, there are rumours that maybe some kind of Android stuff will be on there as well. But also what I think, you know, the fact that you look at the games they were playing on the in the um, the trailer they put out and it was like NBA and Skyrim was in there as well. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't all your, like, your, you know, Angry Birds and all that kind of thing. So it seems like they're actually kind of returning a bit to kind of appealing to like proper gamers, not, you know... Before the Wii was for like grandma and like six year old. Yeah, yeah Billy, that's, wasn't it? that's what I mean about the GameCube as well, because the GameCube had some, you know, serious games in there. It looked like a kid's toy, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it looked totally like a kid's toy, but this also looks totally like a kid's toy, to be honest. I mean, it you kind know, of... with those things that you stick on the side, it, it, it does look, it's not like your sensible, sexy tablet. It's like a bit of a chunky Nintendo item, but. It looks a bit weird, I think. You know, you, you look in the trailer and, like, it. you know, if you haven't watched it, it is basically like a, a tablet that you can pull the sides of the controller off and you can flip them around and two people can actually play on one console using each, like, one person's got the D-pad and one's got the analog stick. Yeah, it's strange. I'm just wondering as well, is it touchscreen or not? Are they, gonna, are they just going to totally use it as a display surface? I think it is touchscreen. Uh, I think but, it's actually, you know, better than the Wii U one. That wasn't, you know, you couldn't do the multi-touch and all that on the Wii U, but I think okay. on this one you can from what I've seen. Um, but there were actually, you know, I mentioned um, NBA and Skyrim there. Mm. This was actually a bit naughty of Nintendo because a couple of days later, Bethesda, for example, released a statement saying, oh, we haven't actually confirmed Skyrim for it. <laughs> we just worked with Nintendo on the trailer. Ah, right, so okay. A lot so... of the games they were showing in the trailer were not actually confirmed for it. Ah, I, I thought you meant Nintendo had just ported it. <laughs> <laughs> Who cares? But, yeah. No, it was, it was more like they, they said, we were happy to work with Nintendo on the trailer, but at this time we've got no plans to develop anything for it. Mm, so a few companies have said that who appeared in the trailer, which, you know, is a bit misleading. Because we heard ages ago that all the dev kits had been sent out to all the companies for the new NX. So, yeah. you know, they'd obviously been hitting the right targets, but we'll see you. Uh, what comes out of this, but do you think it's going to save them uh, they're in the console sense? See, a lot of people have been saying, haven't they, it's great they've got third-party companies back, but you, you know, you remember the start of the Wii U. That had like Call of Duty and FIFA and all that was on yeah, it when it first yeah, came out, yeah. but then they dropped off. What I think a lot of people are doing is, I think a lot of developers are kind of, you know, going to sit back and watch how the first kind of six months do. Well, they're kind of doing a two-pronged attack, aren't they? They're, they're going with the retro, the new retro mini console yeah. that's going to, you know, take all the casual gamers and then they're going to have the like older modern ones with this new Switch. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. And I mean, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure. I, I haven't read if they're going to be discontinuing the 3DS. I don't know. I know the Wii U's dead. 
That, yeah. That's going to be gone. Yeah. But whether they're going to try and just have this one system that will replace, you know, the 3DS and the Wii U, what they really need is that 3DS market to start buying Switches, isn't it? Yeah. That's where they that's succeed. It, that's it. And just transfer everybody onto that. But yeah. We'll see what happens. It's it's a very brave move, I think. Should I tell you what I loved in the trailer, though? What? Did you see the uh, the clip of the new Mario game in there? No, no. They showed about two seconds of it, but it basically looked like Mario 64 upgraded to like full HD. Oh, yeah. It wasn't like well, an old... Well, I guess potential with emulators on this would be amazing as well. But we could talk about this all night, <laughs> and I guess you're probably sick of all the other podcasts talking about it as well. So. But I will just say, I'm going to get one as soon as it comes out. Yeah, sure, and I'll be round to uh, break it when I'm drunk. <laughs> <laughs> right, let's get in some proper retro news, shall we? Yep. Okay, then. So this is um, <laughs> getting HDMI on your Sinclair Spectrum Using a Raspberry Pi. Yeah, and this has been submitted by Starquake, one of our listeners. He sends us great news. And uh, this is insane, actually. It's called TK Pi. Okay. And it's an interface uh, that does HDMI video. Now, what you can do is you can plug a Raspberry Pi Zero, which I don't know if you know, they're those ones that cost about £8. Really cheap, aren't they? Single single little board computer. Incredibly cheap. And then you just stick it in the back of your Spectrum, and it's all uh, open source. And uh, all the software is, you know, fully available. And this works with the Spectrum Next, works with the older Spectrums as well. Oh, cool. In the expansion port. Yeah. So basically you can have a mo- you use the HDMI output of the Raspberry Pi to show your Spectrum's video output on a modern TV. I'm thinking, why don't they do this with other consoles? Because this is a really smart idea, just using the Raspberry Pi to do its own thing. But they're so cheap now. And then, yeah, kind of making an interface with it. I mean, you look at, like, you know, the Amiga, for example, like the InDivision things, they cost, like, what, 130 quid? Yeah, like, yeah, I can imagine it's the same for the Atari yeah. and uh, probably the Acorn and stuff. Imagine if you could get that and just stick this board in with a Raspberry Pi on and uh, go mad. Well, I mean, looking at it, I mean, it, I must admit, my uh, home electronic skills are not all as hot as they probably used to be when I was at school <laughs> and used to build, like, you know, radios and that kind of thing, but it doesn't look that complex, really. And there is, um, it's all on GitHub here, the complete instructions and what you need to order and how to build it and everything. And uh, I guess, you know, as long as you don't blow your Spectrum up, Raspberry Pi is pretty disposable, you can always get a new one. Yeah, yeah, eight quid, who cares? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's awesome though. So if you want to find out a bit more about that, uh, we'll pop that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now we often cover these kind of, uh, like, you know, new retro systems, you could say. Um, this one looks pretty cool though, the Retro Freak. Yes, we mentioned the Retro Freak before, but it wasn't actually out. Now it's out, but only in Japan for some reason. We'll, we'll hope that it gets a, a further release everywhere else. But it's amazing what this can do. It can do 11 systems. Wow. Yeah. It's and got it, like cartridge slots for like everything on it by the looks of it. 11 systems and you can rip the carts as well. So you can rip the carts onto kind of a hard disk. But the, the main thing about what they're actually saying is the Retro Freak itself is not the console. Right. So the Retro Freak is this cartridge that you put inside the console. How's that work then? <laughs> so the console simply acts as a cartridge reader. Right. It's just one big fat cartridge reader to read 11. The Retro Freak is a tiny little cartridge that you have that you can plug into your TV. You can plug your controllers in and just do HDMI out of that. So it's this little cartridge. That's the actual brains of the operation. I guess it's all just housed on one chip then, is it? Yeah. Okay. And the, and the rest of it's dumb. You know, it's just a dumb unit that receives cartridges. And then just rips them when you put them in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it means you can basically get all your old school games ripped onto this thing, pick it in your pocket, 
put it in your pocket, go around your mate's house, <laughs> you know, hook it up to his TV, and it's the size of a SNES cartridge. Yeah, I bought 11 systems with me. What? Yeah. Like, <laughs> but, I mean, it. there are other ones, like the Retron 5, for example, but this looks a lot smaller and a lot more compact, and it's even got, um, I think it's like USB on the front there, but they are saying there are adapters to plug your original um, controllers in, or you can use an Xbox controller, for example. Yeah, and it's, you know... No pirating as well, because what you're actually doing is you're ripping off the game. Mm-hmm. Off the cartridge. Off the cartridge, yeah. So, you know, it's a legal way to obtain games and you can walk around with them. <laughs> it's amazing. Although uh, it does say here on geek.com that, you know, you can actually just download stuff and put it on a micro SD card, you know. Not that we recommend that or anything, no. but you know, I'm sure it, it is possible. <laughs> yeah, there is a slot there. <laughs> but it looks pretty cheap as well. I mean, um, you know, the, the guy wrote this article for um, geek.com. He said it was $150 he bought it. You have to, you know, got it when he was out in Japan, but there are mm. websites that will in- import it to all around the world. The question is as well, the compatibility. Let's hope this is a bit more compatible than the Retron. Yeah, because I know there some people reported glitches and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, there was a few issues, and with 11 systems, man, that's going to yeah. be... <laughs> it's a lot of testing, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if you are thinking of Christmas present ideas, uh, that might be a nice little stocking filler this year. Now, obviously, um, Team 17 are one of our favourite companies, aren't they? Oh, yeah, definitely. Love them. Super Stardust, do you remember that game? Oh, yeah, I've, I got a copy for my CD32, and I managed to get it for 30 quid. Okay, that's not bad. People are putting them on eBay, 150. Uh. <laughs> but it was kind of like, a, it was just an upgraded Asteroids game, really, wasn't it? It was, but then there was tunneled sections. This is the thing. This is the most annoying thing about Super Stardust, that they basically had the best sections. You had to get through about six levels to get to it, yeah. and it lasted 10 minutes. And the rest of it was just Asteroids clone, you know? Well, rather, you're in luck. Ooh. because Super Stardust has been ported to the Commodore 64. But nice. by the looks of it, only the tunnel sections. Yes! <laughs> Excellent. Those are the most impressive ones. What, on the C64? Yeah, so um, wow. there's actually just a demo of it running at the moment. And um, it, it looks pretty cool. The scrolling and all this kind of stuff set. Obviously, you know, there's not, not as many colors as on uh, you know, an AGA chipset Amiga, yeah. for example. Um, and they're saying it does actually need a bit more RAM than the normal Commodore 64 comes with. So you need, need like a RAM pack or... Playing an emulator, for example. Super C64. I don't know, something, yeah. Super Stardust for the Super C64. (laughs) (laughs) But at the moment, there is like a little demo that you can download to try it out. And uh, apparently it's, um, you know, this section of it is up and running pretty nicely. Well, that tunnel section really reminds me of Wipeout. Yeah, you know, yeah, that, that's like a really early version of Wipeout for me. Yes, Wipeout was about two years after that, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, it's cool that, you know, we, we have kind of covered a few of these um, ports of more advanced games onto the 8-bit systems recently, but it's been a lot of Spectrum ones recently, but it's nice to see a bit of Commodore love in there as well. Yeah, definitely. Obviously, a few months ago on the Retro Hour, back at the start of the summer, we were talking about the BBC Micro, the uh, the micro bit, that mini little arm-based machine that the BBC had released? Yeah, I think it was about £4 as well, each machine. Well, it's been massively successful in the UK. And, um, you know, they're saying here they've had 13 million visitors to the BBC resource wow. site. So that's basically 13 people actively going on the site, looking at stuff, developing programs. You know, they've had 10 million that have created programs in the emulator or the kind of scratch thing online. Okay which is amazing. And they're saying that the effect on gills as well is massive. Early research shows that 39% of gills that have used the micro bit said they definitely prefer it than IT or computer science at school because it's a lot more interesting using a computer and That's pretty cool, coding right? it. Yeah, 
it's you know I, I love the whole concept of the fact that there's a new BBC Micro is just awesome. And you know, again, it's doing what it did back in the eighties. It's this kind of project to get kids interested in coding and making software and yeah, and how how stuff works. You know, kind of learning how things work and uh, the people involved. Uh, you know, are Microsoft, yeah. Nominet, Samsung, BBC, all these massive companies. So this is going to go global now after its UK success. So hopefully, Micro Bits will start. Going into Iceland, Singapore, Norway, US cities. Okay, cool. Yeah, well, that's awesome. Because I mean, obviously the Raspberry Pi's out there, but again, I mean, I heard the BBC—they're giving these out to schools, weren't they, for free? Yeah, yeah. And this is kind of—it's not like a pie where you can just load Cody and watch loads of movies on it. It's more of a. Kind I'm sure of, someone will find a way. Yeah, <laughs> it's more kind of a coding machine with Python and stuff like that. You know. Yeah, so it's cool that more people are going to get their hands on it. I mean, I haven't got one yet. So. No, no, I haven't. Uh, we need to go and rob a school or something. A good disorder of the website. Yeah, <laughs> that, that made more sense. <laughs> you can take the boy out of Nottingham. We'll probably get the old BBC micros. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, I did talk about um, this little bit of scandal that's been doing the rounds with a uh, game during the week in the PlayStation VR. Have you heard about this? Uh, yeah, I saw a little article posted, Joe. So this is obviously the new PlayStation VR has come out. Um, and... A lot of people, you know, it's going to be the hot seller this Christmas, isn't it? Apparently, if you go into game and you want to try it out for uh, for half an hour, it'll cost you 15 quid. 15 quid? Yep. For half an hour? That's a bloody disgrace because <laughs> I was at Alt Video Game Lounge in Nottingham and they've got a HTC Vive, which is a lot like nicer. And that would be like five quid for 45 minutes yeah. or something. <laughs> like, And bear in mind that, you know, game are not an arcade. They're a shop trying to sell you this thing. Yeah, to sell you the product. Yeah. Oh, that's so bad. I know. And you know, I think that I think so many people have had bad experiences with VR. You know, they've used kind of Google Cardboard or like much lesser versions of VR. Oh, this is amazing, but it's nothing compared to like the HTC Vive. Mm-hmm. I've had a lot of my friends actually say, "Oh, VR is rubbish," and I said, "Have you tried it?" Yeah. No. I think that, that, <laughs> it's like again that you think game. I mean, you know. They haven't had a lot of success in terms of, you know, their finances. They went bankrupt about two years ago, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. And you think this this Christmas is really make or break for VR, I think, isn't it? They need to get people in. You'd be dragging them off the street. Try this out. Because a mate of mine made a point on uh, my Facebook. He said, well, you know, it's half term at the moment. Going to get a load of snotty kids and it won't be buying it. But those kids will be making their Christmas lists and it'll be like, Mummy and Daddy, I want, I want a PlayStation VR. Yeah, they're not pushing it, man. And like, if this was out in the 90s, you're right. You'd have units in the street. You'd have guys dragging people out and this is you know the kind of future path that playstation set themselves on with the playstation pro coming out and stuff and it's like you know putting up a barrier 15 quid to try it out it's like God. I mean, be, and that's your main game retailer isn't it yeah. in the uk you know yeah, it's, it's nuts and it'd be like walking into curry's and being like you know i want to i want to watch uh, see what that new 4k tv looks like all right yeah 50 quid before you can turn it on you know what I mean? it's <laughs> yeah. like you're trying to sell me this thing here but you made yeah. an interesting point there i mean i you know i've been into a few of the game stores around here recently and even on a saturday there's like what four people in yeah, totally. They're just completely dead. And uh, I even remember when it was Electronics Boutique. I remember Future Zone before that. Future Zone, yeah. yeah. Did that's that called Robot Head, do you remember? The yeah, logo? yeah. I think I think more people actually buy their games from like secondhand shops and uh, online as well. Supermarkets. Yeah, Supermarket yeah. Asda. The queue at Asda for GTA V <laughs> was massive. But, you know, I remember going into like Future Zone um, and as, as a kid, and on a Saturday, me and my mates, we, we'd go in, like, you know, little shops in town. We'd always end up in there, yeah. Electronics Boutique after. And it'd just be full of kids, like, playing on Mega Drives and Playstations, and it'd be like a place to go. And obviously, I mean, I mean there is an argument that you don't want, you know, 
know, keep seeing people say, you don't want snotty kids who are going to break all this stuff, but those are the kids that will be nagging their parents to buy this kind of stuff. And it was just like a, a go-to place back then. We used to all love hanging out it's there. It's really but... strange because I think, you know, they can get hype so wrong on certain things. Like, mm. you know, I've, I've wanted this since I was a kid, yeah. VR. And seriously, when I went on the HTC Vibe, that was like the first time I truly experienced it. And, you know, it felt like decent VR. The Oculus dev unit the first one was like oh. we tried that in uh was manchester about in the wolverhampton wasn't it yeah, a replay yeah. a couple of years back yeah and that was like the, the version one wasn't it of that but again it's like i i'm not sure that vr is going to take off again i'm feeling very skeptical now the more i see it yeah i don't know i want to try this playstation one but i'm not going to pay 15 <laughs> you know? don't buy it from game yeah. <laughs> so we'll keep an eye on it though interesting uh, now, if you're listening at work, maybe at the moment, I know we do get a lot of listeners who tweet us actually during the week, and you know, I've got my earphones in at my desk at work. Maybe you want to play Pac-Man or Breakout in the office. Yeah, well, it might be blocked. Certain gaming sites might be blocked. But what you can do is you can go into Google Images. Do you want to do it now, Dan? This, this is real, is it? So, yeah, so what yeah. do I do then? I go to Google.com. Google.com, okay. click Images, and type in the word Atari Breakout. So it's in the images tab, yeah? Atari, okay. It's a top result, actually, for when you start typing Atari. Oh, wow. Yeah, so what it does is it takes all the images it's and turns... Oh, it's got sound as well. Yeah. <laughs> Listen to that. Yeah, make sure your speakers are turned down at work. Yeah, that'll give it away, <laughs> wouldn't it? Yeah. It's a very noisy Excel spreadsheet you've got there, Clive. <laughs> <laughs> so it turns all the images into a game of Breakout. Yeah, so into like breakout blocks and you can literally play with the breakout images. There's all kinds of cool little things and uh, we've got a link here on the mirror that's talking about them and you know, uh, did you know in Facebook you can play a game of chess or basketball against each other on the uh, instant messenger. You just continue doing the show and playing breakout. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome though, I love little Easter eggs in uh in like commercial websites and stuff that you don't find out about. I wonder how long that's been in there. Yeah, yeah, you know, and uh, they've compiled a little list of them as well. There's, you know, uh, the Pac-Man one, which they had on the, Go oh, is that the Google um, Doodle. Yeah, yeah. yeah if, if you type Pac-Man into Google, you'll get it in the top right corner Yeah, as well. So there's all these cool little <laughs> kind of things. And you can't get fired for looking at Google. No, you can't. There you go. It's not blocked, is it? Now, before we get into this week's interview with Raphael Secco, um, a bit of cool Apple news now. Do you remember the Apple II GS? GS, was that the kind of big desktop version? Yeah, it, it was um, the one that came out in 1986, I think this came out. It was kind of one of the later original, you know, um, Apple products that came well, out. pre-Mac. Yeah, well, Mac was out by then, actually. Okay. This was kind of, you know, the, the Apple II. So this is when they had the longer. two camps going, the uh, yeah. Macintosh and the Apple II. Okay. And this is kind so, of the swan song for the Apple II, if I remember correctly. But, yeah. um, you know, Woz was still at Apple and all that then, Steve Wozniak. Yeah. And there was... Um, no pun intended. Uh, some limited edition Apple II GSs with Steve Wozniak's signature on them. Oh, nice. Nice. Because I, I guess the Apple II camp must have been big Woz fans as well. Yeah. Well, yeah. it was really like Apple's first big machine, really, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, it's where all the Apple fanboys, you know, originated from. And it turns out, anyway, there's this guy who um, posts on a few a forum here, you know, neowin.net, he posts on there. And he's looking through his basement, and you remember that he had an Apple II GS that his mum bought him, like, buried down there, you know, when it first came out. And what it turns out is, he'd read online that there are some limited edition Woz systems, and he thought, I wonder if mine is. So he went and looked down there, and it turns out that he had Steve Wozniak's signature on this machine. Oh, my God. 
<laughs> How could you forget about that in your basement? <laughs> it's it's like, right on the front of it as yeah. well. And only the first 50,000 of them that ever got released um, are like these limited edition Wozniak editions of the uh, the Apple II GS. So, uh, yeah, there, there are a couple of them out there, apparently. Oh, that sounds great, because, you know, you, you hear about Steve Jobs a lot of the time, mm. and you don't hear about the engineer behind yeah. it all, who was was. And he's he's actually a real, genuinely nice guy. Like, when he left Apple, he went to teach skids yeah. how to, you know, create computers. And uh, he's just amazing. Like, we love was. I think with was as well, he's a proper computer geek, isn't he? He's never a businessman. He never, you know, obviously Steve was kind of that side of it. We must make more money, you know, a lot of it was about that. But was, like you said, he was just like, he did it more as a mission to get this stuff out of the world, didn't he, I think? Yeah, totally. And uh, he's just a, a, a nerd in love with the tech. Yeah. And these early systems as well, I mean, you know, we mentioned there's 50,000 of them that made... Um, 1.2 million of these uh, Apple II GSs. Sounds like a lot of them, but then you think this was like 30 years ago. I imagine a lot of them have gone in the bin or the skip or, you know, whatever. So quite how many's out there? Apparently they are pretty rare these days. So especially if you've got like an early serial number. Yeah, so if your mum bought you a computer back in the days, <laughs> check the basement. Absolutely. So thank you for checking out episode number 43 of the Retro Hour podcast. We'll be out again next Friday, available from SoundCloud, Stitcher, if no one's DDoSing it this week. Yeah, God, sorry about that last week. Yeah, and, uh, half the internet was down on Friday last week, wasn't it? Yeah, but uh, it managed to come out like half an hour later. Yeah. Anyway. I got a bit of a panic on, but we got there eventually. Yeah, and check out our Facebook as well, because I'll be DJing at Game City. Um, we're actually recording this today before before I'm DJing, but there should be video online if my laptop hasn't blown up. Oh, you Amigas won't blow up, it'll be the laptop. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's it, the Windows one. <laughs> Ravi DJing on Amiga 1200s, they go down so well when we put them on Facebook, so uh, definitely worth a look. Uh, just search for the Retro Hour podcast. We'll see you again next Friday, and now into this week's special guest for the next half an hour, taking you back to the Spectrum days, Houston Consultants, Exelon, Cyberloid, Stormlord, Street Racer, Crash Magazine... Last Samurai Amiga. Oh, there's so much this week. Raphael Seco is a lovely guy, and he's on the Retro Hour for the next half an hour, and we'll see you next week. Yeah. First of all, Raph, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast this week. No problem at all. It's a pleasure. Now, we're going to get into uh, your history and some of the amazing games that you've worked on over the years. First of all, though, let's go right back to the start. Where did it all begin then? What was your first computer experience? Well, it was... Um... In those days, people used to rent television sets. I don't know if you remember people doing that from places like Radio Rentals, but my dad came home one day with a new TV, which we'd rented, and they'd bundled with it. Um, it was called a Video Master Super Score, which was basically like a Pong variant where you could play football and very simple games like that. And uh, yeah, Well, yeah, it kind of developed from there. So uh, I eventually took this thing apart, as kids do, and saw the microchips inside. I thought, you know, what the hell are these black things with legs? What do they do? And uh, my interest grew from that. And uh, we eventually got an Atari VCS, a ColecoVision, a Mattel Intellivision. We had everything at home. We had you know, all the consoles over the years. And uh, eventually I got my first computer, which was a ZX81 Um I learned how to program in BASIC on that, and that uh, kind of developed into the Spectrum, which I got hold of a bit later. And that's when things really took off. I taught myself how to program properly in, excuse me, in machine code and so on, and it all started from that. I'm glad it wasn't just me that was that kid that used to take everything to bits. I did, like, the video recorder came to bits. And... <laughs> no, no, I used to dismantle absolutely everything, <laughs> toys and everything, and it's really annoying now when I see, you know, things like... Um, 
I know the corgi James Bond card worth quite a bit of money now. <laughs> Might just sm- smash to smithereen somewhere, you know. Yeah, so what were your kind of favourite arcade games then on your super score? Um, well, the only thing that was on that was Pong and variations of Pong, really. Um, there wasn't really much going on on the uh, Video Master Super Score, but certainly at school I was playing a lot of games in the arcades at lunchtime and sometimes not at lunchtime. Uh, you know, Phoenix, Defender, Galaxia, and all those kind of classic arcade games. Yeah, Phoenix was brilliant. I think very underrated Phoenix, but a lot of people kind of mention it, you know, that we talk to in their memories. Yeah, but... it's, it's one of those ones that you don't see mentioned that often, but I really enjoyed it. I just, just all the birds that were flying around and the big mothership at the end. It was a, a really nice, colourful game. I really enjoyed playing that one. I think it was kind of the first time I'd ever seen like an end boss in a game as well. Yeah, well, in a way, it was really, wasn't it? Yeah, and it was, it was actually a fairly elaborate end boss for such an early game. It was it was quite unusual in that respect, certainly. So how did you get into um, coding and making your own games then? How did that develop? Well, that, that was mostly playing around on the spectrum where I taught myself machine code. Um, and I was doing my A-levels at the time, but I was just fed up with school and I wanted to leave basically and I thought well the, the only way I can have an excuse for leaving is to actually find a job so I sent off some demos you know just some sprites flying around and things like that that I'd been working on sent them off to a few companies and I got replied back from uh, Microgen who did all the uh, Wally games Pajama Rama and so on and they thought I was good enough for them to give me a, a job on Four thousand two hundred and fifty quid a year, from what I remember, it wasn't very much money, but I was uh, thrilled to be working in the games industry. I think um, this is the first time we've heard Microgem mentioned on this podcast. Um, were they kind of a big company at the time, or <clears throat> um, no, not really. There, there was only about three or four of them when I um, in, in the programming section, anyway, <clears throat> and they were based up um, above a, a, a news agent somewhere in Surrey. And, uh, yeah, it was a very small company. They also had a, a shop that sold computer games as well. Um, ah. But the, the programming side was really quite small. But they had a very, very good team. The guys that were there were really very good. And were they mainly releasing for the Spectrum? Yeah, it was, it was for the Spectrum. And uh, later on, they, they did the Amstrad versions as well. And the Commodore 64, of course. Well, you mentioned you started working there when you were still doing your A-levels. I mean, was that kind of a, a difficult decision? Were, you, were your parents supportive of your choice? Yeah, well, they were, they were happy that I'd, I'd found something that I wanted to do and, uh, you know, I'd been offered a job. You know, bearing in mind I was only 17 at the time, so it kind of beat working in the supermarket or my dad's calf. So uh, it, was, uh, it was a bit of a no-brainer, really. I, I accepted it, and they were, they were quite happy to see me do it, really. You know, in that era, though, I mean, was working in, in the video games industry, was that kind of seen as a proper job or did not many people understand it then? Um, no, it wasn't seen as a proper job at all. I mean, I, I remember me and up some friends and family and someone asked me, um, you know, what do I do for a living? And I said, well, I create video games. And they said, um, is that legal? <laughs> I don't think they had any idea. I don't know what they think I was actually doing, but uh, no, there was a lot of ignorance in those days. They had no no real idea what was involved or where these things came from at all. They'd been watching war games or something, probably. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, exa- I think, yeah, it was all based around that sort of thing and, you know, 
people playing video games and becoming violent and all this kind of stuff. And I guess, uh, I guess there was not that much money going around in that industry at that time. Uh, no, well, certainly not going into my pocket, that's for sure. Um, some people were making money at the time, but it wasn't me. As I said, my first job was 4,250 quid a year at uh, Microgen, which is you know, kind of laughable now, but um, I was quite happy to work for that at the time. Well, the first title you worked on there was um, Equinox. Um, that's, that's correct. What, yeah. what memories have you got of working on that game then? It was that was an interesting time actually because I before that I'd never actually put together a complete game. It had only been little demos and things, and you know there's a huge difference between putting together a demo and actually seeing the game to the bitter end. So I, I learned a lot. So yeah, I got a lot of help while I was at Microgen as well. And all credit to the guys that were there, but uh, yeah, it was it was quite a, a, an experience actually having to finish a, a, a product and get it out to the market. As you know, there was a, a lot of things going on to actually get to that stage. So, had you kind of completed it to a point, and then someone says, "Ah, this isn't good enough," or was was it finished when you finished it? Um, well, we, there was an expectation that you would finish it within, I don't know, six to nine months or something like that. So you can go beyond that, otherwise people would start asking questions. So you, you kind of had to knuckle down and get the thing finished. And it was all nicely, you know, it was a very simple game, so it didn't take ages to plan out or anything. We had the, all the levels drawn out on paper and so on and uh, just went, went ahead and finished it. As you know, someone who was like, you know, what were you still 17 years old when that came out then, were you? Yeah, I was around 17, 18 at that time. Do you remember the first time you saw your game in a shop then? That must have been quite an experience. It was, yeah. And, and seeing you know, the, the, the box with all the nice artwork and my name at the back, and it, yeah, it was, it was really, it was a very nice thing to see, actually. You know, you think, well, you know, this is, now I can show someone that, you know, I'm not a bank robber or whatever it is they think I'm doing and <laughs> show them the box and say, well, this is what I do. Have, you know, something tangible in your hands. Did you uh, ever try and convince anyone in the store to buy the game? <laughs> Sorry? Did you ever try to convince anybody in the shop, to, you know, buy this game, it's great? <laughs> no, 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 it was it was quite, it sold pretty well, actually, so I didn't actually have to do that. <laughs> well, I know that game did get a really good reception, and I mean, obviously around this time, um, kind of you lived and died by the magazine reviews, really, didn't you? I mean... Um, oh, yeah, I mean, everything was based around what the magazines were, were going to write. I mean, they were hugely important in those days. Obviously, there was no internet, so that's where people made their buying decisions. What was it like waiting for the magazine reviews then? That must have been quite a, quite a nervous time. Uh, yeah, it was. I mean, yeah, I mean, your, your heart would be thumping when you walked into the newsagents and picked up the magazine. You knew that the review was in there and you, you know, quickly flipped through to the page and you said, oh, thank God, it's a good review. You know, it was, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was crucially important and quite nerve wracking. Kind of like a, a theatre performance at the end where they're like, the reviews are in. <laughs> it must have been like yeah, that. exactly the same. I can only imagine it's exactly the same as that, yes. Just looking straight for that score at the end first. Uh, yeah, you skipped where everything <laughs> goes straight for the score. Well, did you have any involvement in, um, obviously, the uh, the ill-fated um, Micro Plus project? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's what eventually caused Microgen to close down because they invested, a lot, well, I'd say a lot of money, but it was about 150000 I think, they'd invested, which, you know, then was quite a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And that was to produce, like, a cartridge that plugged into the back of the Spectrum, which had the joystick ports and some additional memory. So the idea was that you could have a, a, a bigger, better game in there with an extra 16K or something. Um, unfortunately, the, the game, 
that they decided to put in it first was rubbish, basically. Um, and it just all went downhill from there. It was full of bugs and it just didn't work out. It was a big mistake, really. They should have just carried on doing normal Spectrum games, which they were very good at. So that was kind of a thing. I know around the time, obviously, Imagine Software, they had kind of their super games that were meant to come out that needed like more resources and that. I mean, it was, it was, was it kind of a thought that the, the Spectrum needed like more RAM to do these bigger games? Well, the, the funny thing was we, we'd, um, we were also working on another game at the time called uh, Three Weeks in Paradise, which was another Wally game. And it was uh, based in the jungle or something. And um, that was also on the Micro Plus with the extra 16K of memory. Then when we discovered we couldn't actually release the game on the Micro Plus because they weren't going to produce it, it was actually quite easy to reduce it down so it fit in the normal spectrum anyway. So it had been <laughs> a bit of a waste of time. People just got very kind of laissez-faire with uh, all the memory and everything when they had extra memory to, to play with. And, uh, yeah, they, they just wasted it, basically. It wasn't actually needed. Sounded like they were incredibly bloated. <laughs> That's why they needed to fit on me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it, it just didn't work. It wasn't necessary. We should have just focused on doing no- normal games. And we, we proved, you know, when I joined Houston later on, it was quite possible to produce great games without the extra memory. So, Well, um, the, the timing of this is great as well, because last week we just had Rob Houston on telling us about how they're kind of coming back. And um, you joined Houston after Microgem went into financial difficulty. That's right, yes, I did. How was it? Um, and uh, It was how- great. They're, Houston, they were a really good company. They were a, a small company, but the people that were there were, you know, they, they all knew their stuff. Uh, Andrew and the other coders they had there, even, the, you know, everyone in the marketing department, they're all really good people, good laugh, and I, I had a great time when I was there. Certainly a better time than, than I had at Microgen, that's for sure. How did you uh, get the job there? Did you send any tapes in? Or? No, it was um, I mean, it was a very small industry then. So w- when you were looking for work or um, publishers were looking for developers, it didn't take long to actually meet up. And uh, I, I, I just went there with a... It might have been with a demo of Exelon, possibly, uh, I think, and uh, showed that to Andrew Hughes, and he, he loved it, and uh, we agreed to work together. Well, Excellent was the first game that you worked on that Houston released. Um, I remember that it did get a lot of fanfare at the time as well. I've even read that people um, referred to you as like the saviour of the home computer scene at the time that game came out. I mean, well, I'm very flattered they say that. But it, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, yeah, it had nice graphics and it, it looked very arcadey. Um, so it kind of maybe breathed a bit more life into the spectrum and uh, you know, I carried that on with, with Cybernoid as well. And that got some really good reviews as well. I mean, that must have helped kind of really put your name on the map when that game got so big. Yeah, I mean, I, I, at the time, I was, I was a very well-known Spectrum program, and that's, uh, I, got, I think I got recognised in the street once. So there you go. That, was my, <laughs> that was my claim to fame. There you go. <laughs> well, speaking of things that helped raise your profile, I mean, you, you had a regular column in, uh, in Crash magazine as well. Um, tell, yeah. us, tell us a story about that then. How did, how did that start? Well, that was actually Andrew Hewson's idea to do this um, a monthly diary, which was two or three pages every month in just about the biggest magazine at the time. And to be quite honest, I wasn't keen on the idea because I was working on the game. I thought, well, this is another thing that I have to do now every month on top of all the graphics and the programming. But I could see it was a really good opportunity to get a huge amount of um, publicity for free effectively 
in a very popular magazine. So I kind of went with it. And, uh, yeah, it just carried on from there. So every month I had to think up some, you know, unique and funny and interesting stories about <laughs> video games development, which is actually quite boring a lot of the time from a technical point of view. So I just tended to write about the people that I dealt with and the relationships and all that kind of thing, which uh, made it a bit more interesting. I guess um, at that time period as well, as you said, the spectrum was kind of reaching the end of its life and you gave it a new gust of wind or a new bit of fresh air. I guess Crash was also doing that, uh, keeping that community alive. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, it was a, it was a, a great magazine. I mean, you you'd flick through it and it was just all colours and big pictures and all that. It was a you know a lovely thing to look at. Crash as well, and I think yeah, it, it really retained the interest in the spectrum, possibly longer than it deserved from a technical point of view. Anyway, so um, yeah, it, it, was, it was a very nice thing to be able to do. Do you have maybe one story or one column that you know particularly sticks in your mind from uh, those that used to write for Crash? <sighs> There was once when I went, I think they were based in Ludlow, I think it was. I went down to see them and uh, the journalists there thought it would be a great idea if I stood on this very high wall that, that happened to be there and jumped off and they'd take a picture of me in midair or something. I don't, I don't remember why we wanted to do this, but it seemed like a good idea at the time. I remember thinking it was a bit high, but I still did it anyway. And I ended up on my backside on the floor. Uh, thankfully, they didn't get any pictures of that, but... Uh, it did hurt quite a bit, actually. <laughs> yeah, but apart from that, it was, uh, yeah, every month it was just, you know, just conversations with Andrew Hewson and things that happened and that kept it relatively entertaining. Well, I imagine working at Hewson um, back at kind of their heyday at that time. Um, what was kind of the atmosphere like of working there? Were you there day to day or did you kind of come and go? No, I, I, I sort of, uh, I used to go about maybe once or twice a month because I was actually working freelance, um, I don't know, about 40 miles away or something. So I'd uh, visit them maybe, you know, once or twice a month and just, just pester everybody and uh, just just have a good time, really. One of your most famous games for Houston was um, obviously Cybernoid. And, you know, around this time, I, I know Houston are kind of known for releasing the best quality games. And that kind of really sealed that as well. And it was kind of a, a bit of a cross between a shooter and a platformer. It was a bit of a strange concept, really, wasn't it? How did that kind of come about then? Um, really, it was an extension of, of Exelon, really, in a way. But instead of just being pretty much a horizontal game, I, I just added the, the vertical movement as well. It was, it was the same kind of idea. The fact that it was well, spaceships was kind of ir- irrelevant. I used to not think about the games in that way. It was... I would just think about how things were going to move and then I would build a story on top of that. So it just happened to end up a spaceship. It could have been anything, a creature or a person flying around or something like that. It's just chance that it happened to end up as a space theme, really. Well, it was always praised for having great graphics and kind of pushing the specky to its limits, you know, getting the maximum amount of juice you can out of the spectrum. Um did you enjoy that kind of efficiency in getting the code really tight? Yeah, it was. that was one of the most enjoyable parts of coding was having this very simple, basic machine and just pushing it to the absolute limits and using all sorts of tricks that you pinch from other people or discovers and all this kind of thing and then just really pushing the machine hard. You, know, you knew that you pushed it to the absolute maximum and there wasn't anything else you could do with it, you know. It's not like now where, you know, you just 
the World Vision new graphics card coming out, so I don't have to worry about that. So, you know, the machine you had was the machine you had, and you had to get the absolute best out of it. Well, it seems you might have been a bit of a cheeky chap uh, back then, because there's often like some stuff in your games. Like um, I remember in Stormlord, there was like the naked uh, lady fairies in the background that were censored in the Mega Drive versions, and there was maybe a few other examples in your games of that too. Yeah, I, I, I used to, uh, but I used to get bored. You know what it's like. <laughs> you put these things in, and uh, I mean, once uh, Houston asked me to to write a press release. Uh, I can't remember what it might have been Exelon even, or uh, yeah, it might have been Exelon. And they um, they didn't read it before they sent it out, and it was <laughs> it was just full of innuendo, basically. And the magazines <laughs> received this thing and published it. And, the, and there was a few comments about uh, one magazine called called it the uh, the bizarreness of the waffle. They called it. They couldn't believe that they'd released this. What, what was Andrew's reaction to that then? <laughs> yeah, I, I, well, I, I, it wasn't that bad to be quite. It was, it was just a bit strange and funny. So uh, we, we got away with it that time. He he read everything I wrote after that, that's for sure. (laughs) Boys will be boys. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I remember one other um, compilation that Houston put out, actually. They put out Seco's Collection, and that must have been like one of the first times that a game collection was named after the creator. Was was that quite an honour? Yeah, it was was a really strange seeing a box like that with my my surname as kind of in the main title, you know. But uh, it, it kind of made sense because... Houston has been very good at the PR with releasing the games and, and pushing my my name along with the games to give a, a bit of personality to them. So it, it certainly made sense to do that at the end. They they all credit to Houston. They they really knew their stuff in terms of generating interest and uh, a lot of PR. Definitely. Well, they uh, ran into financial difficulties around 1991, and your last game was Stormlord Two. Um, was it yes. sad ending your relationship with him? And did you enjoy making Stormlord? Uh, yeah, I, I did. It was um, I never really had any issues with Houston's at all. They were a great bunch to work with, and it was yeah, it was sad when they had to close down. Well, they did kind of reopen virtually the next day um, under 21st Century, I think it was at the time. But unfortunately, I was kind of moved on by then. And that's when I went to work at uh, Vivid Image. Did, did you never have any plans to, like, did they make no offer for you to come to 21st Century Entertainment then, or was it never on the card? No, it didn't pan out like that. And I, I think they, what was it, Pinball Games that they started doing or something, yeah. which really wasn't my thing. Uh, you know, we, we kind of drifted apart in, in terms of what we wanted to work on, I think. So I didn't want to work on Pinball Games. Um, so, yeah, that, that's why I ended up going elsewhere, I think. And of course, that was uh, the period that it was kind of changing to sixteen bit around then, from eight. Yeah, bit, so. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a, it was a, a, a transitional period at, at the time, and you know, all the coders were looking towards you know the Atari ST and the Amiga and so on. I mean, I, I did one more Spectrum game at Vivid Image, a, a game called Time Machine, which was actually a brilliantly designed little game, actually. Um, but after that, it was all all sixteen bit. So how did you join Vivid then? What was the story there? Um, I don't remember exactly how we met up, to be quite honest. But again, it was a small industry. So coders and uh, publishers and developers, they they would invariably meet up at some point if they knew that, you know, you were looking for work or something. Um, So I don't remember exactly how we we ended up meeting up, but we did. And uh, we struck up a working relationship. Well, obviously, at Vivid, you got to uh, work with Mev Dink. Um, yes. That must have been quite quite exciting. 
it was, yeah. I mean, Max, Max is a great. Obviously, I'm working with him again now. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's um, we love Max. Yeah, yeah. He's he's quite a character, man. But it's always been a hell of a lot of fun working with him. Um, loads of ideas, cons- too many ideas sometimes. Um, loads of enthusiasm. Um, obviously, we're working together now, and it's like nothing's changed really. It's the same old people getting excited about things again. What was kind of the working atmosphere like at Vivid then? Did you guys like, you know, was it kind of play hard and party hard or was it long hours? What was it like? It was always, to be quite honest, there wasn't much partying at Vivid as I can remember, to be quite honest. But um, it, yeah, it was we working hard. I wasn't, I, I didn't work in-house. Again, I was freelance and I would, I would visit their offices in Harrow, you know, two or three times a month and work there sometimes. But uh, I was mostly at home anyway. Well, um, one of your big projects was the legendary first samurai and that was uh on the new commodore amiga um what did you think of the machines when you started using them i'll admit oh it was wonderful after <laughs> after coming from the uh the spectrum which was a great little machine but to have all that all the extra colors and the memory and the lovely processor and all that kind of thing it was a real like a real luxury to be able to program a machine like that and it was you know, it was way way ahead of its time the amiga Really great machine. I absolutely love working on it. Well, being a being a Spectrum fan before that, was it a bit of a a difficult step using a Commodore machine? That must have felt a bit dirty. Uh, no, I, I <laughs> no no. I, I was never very tribal like that. I mean, I I, I really rated the Commodore sixty four as well. But my good friend Nick Jones, he used to do all the um, Commodore sixty four conversions of my game. So I I never really got the chance to program that machine, but it was a very good machine as well. Yeah. I didn't, I'd, I'd work on anything, whatever was exciting and new. I was quite happy to work on. Yeah, it must have been uh, mind blowing with the palette choices and stuff afterwards. Oh yeah, oh, four thousand ninety six colours. If you were clever, yeah, it was um, it was brilliant. Yeah, and we got that lovely gradient sky effect. <laughs> it's amazing things that you used to be proud of in those days, but. Um, it was great, yeah. Lovely machine, way ahead of its time. And obviously around then, the, the consoles, you know, we had the uh, Super Nintendo and uh, the Sega Mega Drive as well. Um, did you kind of have an interest in those? Because I know a lot of your games came out on those systems as well. Did you... Um, yeah, did you I, I, I... Great. Again, I, I personally worked on the, um, on the Sega Mega Drive. Um, it made sense to do that because it was the same processor as the Amiga, so there, there wasn't really a learning curve in terms of learning the uh, the actual language, as it were. But obviously, the hardware was different. You had all the sprites and fancy sounds and so on. But um, yeah, it was again, it was a, a very nice machine to use, and I, I created um, Second Samurai on the uh, on the Mega Drive. I just really loved First Samurai. I thought it was uh, such a good kind of arcadey title as well. And it was probably the closest thing we had on the Amiga to a proper arcade game, you know. Yeah, it was. Um, again, I mean, you could probably see the influence from you know other games that I'd done in the past, like X Long. It was you know a bit platformy, and but there was a lot of different elements in it. Then we had all the huge levels that you had to explore and bosses and. Obviously, we went crazy with the sound. This was another thing where I put these samples in just as a joke. If you remember the Hallelujah chorus and all that yeah. stuff, it, it just it just ended up staying in. You didn't worry about things too much in those days. It just stayed in. It was uh, you know people would have a, a bit of a laugh. Although now, when I play the, the videos on YouTube and watch it, I think oh my god, it's almost unbearable because it keeps doing it. But um, it's, so yeah, it was fun at the time, certainly. Uh, the way you move through the levels as well was really interesting. It wasn't just your kind of platformers, you know, there was different 
bits underneath and on top. It was it was just a nice way of playing. Yeah, they were really, really big levels, actually. You know, probably, possibly even too big. They were really quite sprawling, and you, you could dig dig down with your sword and visit all the caverns and things, and you would obviously climb. And, so you could go absolutely everywhere. And, uh, you know, it would take quite a while to actually finish the levels because they were so big. Well, you made an interesting point there about the fact that you could kind of sneak these, like, you know, samples in and do that kind of thing. I imagine, you know, in the games industry after that, when we got into, like, the mid-90s, you started getting these big teams where it would be, like, you know, like 50 people working on a game or even bigger. This must have been kind of like the last era where it was just a couple of guys that you could get a game out with. Yeah, I, th- I think it was obviously have all the, the little indie studios now that, that are doing things, you know, with a very small team. So that that's kind of come back to a certain extent. But, um, yeah, it, it certainly did stop um, once you started getting into the kind of the console era and, and, and beyond, you know, into the, the PlayStation and so on. It was completely changed and it was bigger and bigger teams and you kind of became a much smaller cog in the whole process of actually making the games. Yeah, it kind of loses that little personality. It's, you know, these little cheeky pieces that everyone has in their games. Yeah, it's... Um, you know, you, know, you t- still try and sneak things in where, where you can, whatever you can get away with. You have to be very careful with things like copyright and all that kind of thing now. So you, know, you don't want to get litigated against, you know, just for stealing a little sample or something like that. So it's Yeah, I think everybody did that in the Amiga. They all stole each other's samples. Yeah, well, so. you could play samples. You had to have samples. Well, obviously, um, around that time, one of your most, you know, I'd say polished titles that came out then was um, The Incredible Street Racer, which, uh, you know, we regard as better than Mario Kart. We, you know, we love that game. Um, and the multiplayer elements of that game as well was was amazing. What was the development process of that then, and what, what involvement did you have on that? Well, to, to be clear with that, I, I was actually involved in the design of that game in the initial stages. I drew up all the, the characters and the, a lot of the moves and things like that, but it was actually... Um, Chris and Tony West who actually programmed that game and uh, it was Chris West who um, who did all the coding for the, the four player split screen um, and he did an amazing job because I know the um, the uh, Super Mario Kart was actually using a, a DSP chip I think to actually yeah. do that kind of stuff and we didn't have one and obviously the publishers were very happy because it, it meant it was cheaper to manufacture did you get a lot of comparisons against uh, Mario Kart, I imagine, then? Yeah, I, I, I think we did. And uh, I, think, I think when Mev was doing the, the PR for that, they, they, they had people at <laughs> Nintendo gathering around, having a look, saying, uh, so uh, no uh, extra chips in this cartridge. <laughs> they were wondering how we did it. So, uh, yeah, it was a really technically very impressive game. Well, after this period, obviously you mentioned the you know the PlayStation coming along, and kind of that did change quite a lot. Do you, do you remember the first time you saw a PlayStation? Yes, I think well, we we got the early development kits, and we saw some of the, the demos and things like that. Obviously, everything had gone from two D to three D, which was like a you know it was a massive sea change that you know, it was much bigger than going from eight bit to sixteen bit because you have to think about things in completely different ways and. All of a sudden, you know, you had to know a bit more about mathematics and this kind of thing. So it was, uh, yeah, it was incredibly different seeing games presented in a, a 3D way. It's a bit strange, isn't it? Because if you look at those early PlayStation games, I think they've actually aged worse than like the Amiga games and the, the Mega Drive games. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's because you kind of had this kind of exponential improvement in the graphics, in, certainly in 3D, whereas... 
two D games kind of got to a certain point and they they, they stayed there. Um, but certainly with three D, you know, every couple of years it was just so much better looking, and it was probably why early three D games look pretty awful now. As a developer, then that must have been, you know, you think of that late eighties to kind of mid nineties era. Stuff was changing like every two years. You got a massive new generational leap, didn't you? Was it hard to keep up with it? The, the biggest change was, as I said, was going from two D to three D because that that was everything was alien. You know, it was all trigonometry and matrices and all this kind of mathematics stuff that you you know you kind of dabbled with it a bit when you were doing two D games, but three D there was no choice. You had to do it. And also creating all the art was completely different. Before you were just, you know, it was just pixels, but then you were, you were having to model things in triangles and polygons, and it was just completely different. Those extra dimensions, make yeah, it really literally confusing. an extra dimension to the uh, to development. Yeah, certainly. Well, you're working with Mev Dink again these days, then, aren't you? Yes, I am working with Mev Dink again. <laughs> Tell us about this then. Well, um, we met up um, about two and a half years ago when Mev was visiting from abroad because he'd been in Turkey for years and he'd uh, basically kicked off the games industry there, which is you know quite a bustling big industry there now. And uh, he, he came to London, he was visiting, he said, you know, do you want to meet up? And we just got started talking about remaking First Samurai. It wasn't, the time wasn't right then because I was working on a lot of things and we, we just couldn't sort out the timing. But then Mev, he'd been in Barcelona for a while as well, and he came back to London, uh, you know, about six months ago. And he said, well, I'm back in the UK now. There's no excuses. So uh, we, we've just basically got together again. We've started um, a new startup company, Pixel Age Studios, and uh, we're remaking First Samurai. It's going to be called Super Samurai. Well, what's it like, though, like getting the team back together? That must be amazing. It's it's exactly the same apart people apart from the fact people are kind of heavier and have less hair and things like that. <laughs> but, uh, it's the same. It's incredible actually. It's just the same enthusiasm, the same arguments, and wanting to throttle each other over the most pathetic little things. And <laughs> yeah, it's exactly the same. It's it's quite weird. I'm glad that we you know we've all got that energy still. Um, which is the main thing, and that, that energy and enthusiasm for creating games again, which is great. Does people's interest in like your old titles still like amaze you, the fact that people are still talking about work that you did like 20 or 30 years ago? Yeah, it, it does. And it, it's sometimes I'm, I almost feel guilty that I'm not as enthusiastic about it as other people are. Because, you know, you kind of move on onto other things. But, you know, it's, it's great, and it's incredibly flattering to have people say that, you know, they loved playing your games and it was all part of their childhood. And you think, well, yeah, that's that's brilliant. Uh, that's a, a very nice thing to hear. So tell us about the new version of uh, First Samurai then. What, what can we expect from this then? It's, oh, well, amazing graphics, of course. Um, there'll be a lot of humour in there, um, certainly where we can fit it in because we think things have got far too serious in places. But uh, fantastic music. We've got um, Alistair Brimble actually doing our music soundtrack for us as well. Oh, excellent. Um, yeah, um, very famous games music composer. He was our um, first guest on this podcast uh, oh, 43 really? episodes okay. ago, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, he was very enthusiastic as well. Um, and we're just expanding on the original concept, so there's going to be more magic and more different moves and 
just all the kind of things that we would have wanted to put in the Amiga version but couldn't do at the time. Uh, it's going to look very, very high-end and modern and 3D, of course, but we're still going to try and retain the kind of immediacy and simplicity of the gameplay, certainly in the outset when you start playing the game, but obviously that will develop into a big, sprawling action-adventure Um Loads of stuff going in, basically. You're going to have big bosses in there as well. Yeah, well, we have to have bosses. There's no no escape from the bosses, um, and they'll certainly be an integral part of the game, definitely. It's crazy because, you know, you play, like, First Samurai and stuff again now, and as a kid, like, you know, I can play it no problem. I find it so hard now. <laughs> it's like whether my reflexes have slowed down or what, I'm not sure. Oh, it's, it's the same here. <laughs> I, I, I play the odd game on the emulator sometimes, and I... I just can't play. My reaction times are measured in whole seconds now, so yeah, I'm not, not very good at them anymore. I, I still, my, I've got a daughter, and she she loves games, so I, I still play things like Gang Beasts and things like that with her. But uh, I, I wouldn't say I was a hardcore gamer because I, I just can't be a hardcore gamer. I just don't don't have the reaction times now. It's that level of concentration and focus you need that's really hard. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> stick to making them instead. Well, yeah, I mean that's just the the main thing. Yeah, I, I can play them a bit. So I'm not brilliant, but uh, yeah, the, the main thing is making them and having fun doing it. Have you had a nice reaction then from people now they hear that first Samurai and Street Racer are coming back? Then you must have had. Some yeah, I mean we, we we haven't really started the main PR push yet. We've got our Kickstarter campaign starting very very soon, and that's when things will really kick off. Uh, kind of, you know, Mev's circling the wagons as, as we speak, getting things ready, and, uh, yeah, it's going to look great, and uh, we'll, we'll have a great video so people will be able to see what, you know, some of the things that are going to be in there, and uh, music and all sorts. So, yeah, very exciting. Well, as soon as that Kickstarter uh, begins, do let us know, and we'll obviously give it a big plug on the show. And uh, oh, yeah. oh, don't worry, we'll, we'll be running after you, uh, <laughs> telling you about it. Don't worry about that. We'd love to do a little review as well and uh, sit down and have a play. I'm sure that'll be fun. Yeah, any beta oh, copies or anything? <laughs> <laughs> well, Raph, it's been amazing talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. Brilliant. Thank you. It's been a, a pleasure talking to you. And I'm glad that, you know, you and Mev are working back together again. And we, we think it's so cool that we're going to have a chance to play these classic games in, uh, you know, a new generation are going to get to experience them as well. Great. Um, if people want to find out anything more, this is why I get a plug-in. If they visit... Um, pixelagestudios.com there's a couple of links there at the moment going to our social media site so people can check things out as things develop excellent we'll put those links in our show notes on our, on our website as well brilliant excellent well thank you again Raf. been lovely talking thank, to you thank you very much Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.
If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. You know you got the most. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.